So before we get to Mark chapter 5, um, we've got to make a few stops and put a couple building blocks in place in order to understand this passage that we're going to read. And the first thing that we get to talk about uh, is the concept of clean versus unclean. Now, we could turn to the book of Leviticus, but I'm not going to make you do that. Mainly because I'm assuming that everyone was probably up early this morning, cup of coffee, reading Leviticus, reading a little bit of the legal code. So I'm not going to make you go there right now, unless you really want to. Anyone want to? Someone said sure. I'm not going to. <laughs> nice try. Uh, but basically, the book of Leviticus contains the legal code for the, the Israelite people. And, and in it, there's a concept of clean versus unclean. Now, this is totally foreign to us. But for much of the world, it's not a foreign idea. It's actually, I mean, it's, it's common to some people within the United States as well, but in our Western American kind of evangelical Christian circles, unclean and clean is a weird kind of totally separate thing. And uh, within the legal code, there's a specific set of laws about bodily fluids. Now, it's more than just about hygiene, it's about ritual cleanness. And within bodily fluids, there's specific laws that talk about a woman's specific time of the month. And... Yeah, it's my first time teaching. Yeah, thank you, Jose, for giving me this passage. <laughs> he did it on purpose, I know it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Put the, the engaged guy, at, yeah. Um, bodily fluids, uh, women's time of the month. Okay, I'm getting off track already. Everyone at some point in time experienced ritual uncleanness. Everyone uh, had something happen to them where they would be ritually unclean. And when you were ritually unclean, what it meant was you couldn't interact with people. Uh, you couldn't interact with your community. You couldn't interact with your spouse if you were married. Uh, you couldn't go to the temple for worship. Uh, and for women who were unclean, it actually meant that they, um, whatever they touched, or for anyone who was unclean, whatever they touched became unclean. Whatever was unclean made something else unclean as soon as they touched it. So there was a problem. You had to separate yourselves from clean and unclean. And there were systems, and there were rituals for, for getting back into cleanness, and it was just a normal part of life for them. Um, now, it's kind of foreign to us, but uh, it's not foreign to lots of people. So I had a buddy when I played, I played college football. I know I look like I've just, you know, played college football, but I did. And when I was a freshman, there was a guy who, uh, he was a Muslim, and he could not eat uh, food that had been cooked in a pot that had also been used to cook pork in. So he'd have to come in and he'd have to say, hey, can you cook me something separate? Just because the idea of clean and unclean. And then I was, I was downtown in Portland talking to a rabbi two weeks ago doing this thing for Western Seminary. And I was asking him, like, what, what is it like to keep kosher? I don't even know what that means. And so he was explaining it to me. And basically, there's just certain things that are off limits and you just can't touch them. So it's not completely foreign to everyone in the U.S., but it's, it's kind of a foreign category for us. Uh, now, back to the woman's certain time kind of thing. Um, <laughs> it's just so, yeah. So people had a system of thought. Uh, it it wasn't just a legal code. There was a lot of stigma that arose around it. And it meant that the woman would have to be set far away, left alone, separate from community. She was separate from the temple, and she was separate from intimacy if she was married. Um, and women who were caught in this, you'd be caught in this system for your entire life, and they were in need of hope. And so on the idea of hope, we can get off that subject. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Have a Bible. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. It's the, in our Bible, is the last book of the Old Testament. And we're actually going to look, just in Malachi 4, we're going to look at the first two verses of the passage. There's a lot of flipping. Some people don't know where Malachi is. That's okay. I'm going to read it. Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2. Surely the day is coming 
It will burn like a furnace. So uh, I got to give some background to this. Uh, Malachi is talking about a promised day when God would set everything right that sin and evil had set wrong in the world. So we can all acknowledge the fact that there's things in the world that we don't like that are bad. They're evil, they're wrong, there's injustice. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we have the promise from God that there will be one day when everything would be set right. And so Malachi is picking up on that and he's promising again. So picking up back in verse one, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So Malachi is saying there's going to be a day, he's, he's, he's speaking for God, he's going to say he's, there's going to be a day when everything's going to be set right, you're going to experience healing and you're going to be like little calves who jump around. I think that's what frolicking is. I was going to frolic, but that'd be kind of awkward. This this passage is really cool for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I, we talk about it a lot, but we can't be overstated. They're, the people, by the time that Jesus came on the scene, the people are longing for this. They're expectant for it. Under, for 600 years, they lived under foreign oppression. They're, they're crying out to God saying, God, when are you going to come through on the promises? I, I've heard it. I know it's supposed to happen. I've read Malachi. When is it going to happen? So there's a lot of expectation and longing and hope when, it comes, when Jesus comes on the scene. Also cool about this Malachi passage is this word, uh, if you have the NIV, it's translated rays, um, but if you have an ESV, it's translated um, wings, and the word in, in Hebrew is kanaf, and it really just means the edge of something, so because it's, in context, it's talking about a sun, the edge of a sun is its rays, but if it was a bird, the edge of the bird would be its kanaf, would be its wings, and for the 600 years between when Malachi wrote to when Jesus wrote, this tradition arose about this passage because it says when the Messiah comes, there will be healing in his kanaf. And Jewish rabbis would wear um, these prayer shawls, prayer scarves. And so the tradition arose that, the, that all you would have to do is touch out and touch the edges, the kanaf of his prayer shawl or his robe, um, the hems of his robe, that all you would have to do is to touch the edges of that and you would be healed. That that's what it would be like when the Messiah came around. So with those two kind of seemingly unrelated passages about uncleanness and then about Kanaf. Um, turn, in Mark cha- uh, turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 21. And as you're turning there, uh, just a bit of broad background of Mark. There is a general theme throughout the book of Mark about hearing and response. So we, if you remember back a couple weeks, I think it was Brooke was talking about um, the passage where Jesus talks about the parable of the seeds, the, the good soil, and then the, the soil that chokes the seed. It's all about what you hear and how you respond to it. So Mark 4 is about hearing, and then Mark 5, 6, and 7 is what these people in real life, how they respond to Jesus' message. And really the question that we have in the back of our heads as we read Mark 5 is, if Jesus is who he says he is, how should I respond? So picking up in, in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, Mark writes, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Now, remember last week, he had gone across the lake, he had cast out the legions of, legion demons, all the pigs running in the water, kind of an interesting story. Um, what we see now in verse 21 is Jesus coming back to the other side of the lake, and the village is expectant, they're waiting, they're ready. I imagine like some guy was, hey, I think that's Jesus over there, and he runs back to the whole village, and they kind of come and wait. We were at a Timbers game last night, and I'm, I'm totally imagining reading this passage as people going, like cheering, you know, the cra- anyone ever been to a Timbers game, the crazy cheers, like, Jesus, 
kind of something like that. Like, you're coming, we're so excited. People are ready. People want to see Jesus. They want to catch a glimpse of him because they've heard about him. Back down in verse 22. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So Jairus is a synagogue leader, which means he's this volunteer who kind of runs the building. He organizes the, the different services that they do at the synagogue. Uh, and, he, and he has a lot going for him because he has this role. He's probably pretty affluent. Um, he knows a lot of people. He probably knows the Pharisees. And if you've read the Gospels before, you know the Pharisees aren't huge fans of Jesus because he's a pretty controversial character. So Jairus is putting a lot on the line by running towards Jesus, but it's because he's desperate. He says, my little daughter is dying. And and Jairus seemingly approaches him in in kind of the best way possible. He's got everything going for him. He's a man. He's probably pretty wealthy. He's a synagogue leader. He's like volunteering. And he runs before Jesus and he falls down and he asks Jesus to do something. And Jesus responds favorably. Jesus is willing to be interrupted, which I think is really interesting. I'm assuming that Jesus had some sort of plans for the day, but Jairus runs up and says, hey, my little daughter is dying, and Jesus is interruptible. He enters into the desperation of Jairus, and he goes with him. Back down in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So don't glance over this. Remember back to the beginning, kind of uncomfortable bit about the unclean woman. She's unclean, and she's in a crowd of people. If you were an original here, you go, this woman's been bleeding. Why is she in a crowd of people? She was supposed to be separated from relationships. She was supposed to be separated from intimacy at any level. She was supposed to be separated from temple worship, but she's here in a crowd of people. And notice, she's been bleeding for 12 years. I can't remember 12 years ago. I was in sixth grade. I was Jonah's age which is a long time that this woman's been suffering. Now, again in verse 26, or down in verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, this word for suffering is a Greek word, mastix, which really denotes a sense of um, torture. It means like horsewhip is another way that it gets translated in other texts. And Mark is using really graphic language. Notice he says, she suffered much by many doctors. She spent everything, but she didn't improve and actually got worse. So Mark's saying, she did everything, and, and, and she actually got worse. And, and on this suffering, um, this might seem really interesting to us because we think of doctors as like well-educated, pretty capable people, but for doctors at this time, they were more like magicians. And so we have this passage which is really goofy, but I'm going to read it just to give us an idea of, to get into the woman's frame of mind of what she would have had to go through. <laughs> this is, yeah. So this is what a doctor would do. This is what a doctor magician would have done for the woman. Because she has this problem for 12 years. He says, let them procure three kapiza of Persian onions, which I have no clue what a kapiza is. Boil them in wine, make her drink it, and say to her, cease her discharge. As if that was supposed to work. But if not... She would be made to sit as at a crossroads, hold a cup of wine in her hands, and a man, imagine, imagine watching this, and a man comes up from behind, frightens her, and exclaims, seize her discharge. It's really goofy. But if not, a handful of cumin, a handful of saffron, a handful of fenugreek are brought and boiled in wine. She's made to drink it, and they say to her, seize her discharge. 
I, I, I broke the thing. <laughs> it was effective. It was effective against this thing. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Let's look at verse 27. <laughs> When she heard about Jesus, the thing is, I'm going to have to fix that or figure out someone to fix it because it's part of my job. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? Now, remember back to the Malachi 4 imagery, um, the kanaf. So what this woman does is she's heard about Jesus. She's heard who he is, or she thinks she heard about, maybe this guy's the Messiah. Let me see if it'll actually work. I've tried for 12 years. I've tried everything I possibly could. And so she pushes through the crowd, and she risks a lot because she's now touching all these people, making them unclean. And she pushes through the crowd just to touch Jesus' robe, and it works. 12 years of pain and shame and suffering, and in a moment, Jesus touches her, and she's healed. Notice the difference between Jairus and the woman. So, so Jairus is a man, he's well off, he comes before Jesus, falls in front of him, at, and bows down saying, please help my daughter. The woman comes from behind, she seeks to the crowd just to try and grab him, and she's, she's an unclean woman. Mark is do, what Mark is doing is he's presenting these two stories side by side so that that we as a reader, we as a hearer, can understand the story better. Now, I think it's really funny because uh, notice here, the disciples say, you see the people crowding against you, Jesus. His disciples, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? Like, what a dumb question, Jesus. Now, the disciples don't get it. And we see that throughout Mark. And I think that's encouraging to us because just like they didn't have it figured out, we don't have to figure, have it figured out either. But Jesus' power just kind of unmediated goes out to this woman. He doesn't have to like stop and say a magical uh, prayer. He doesn't have to go and yell at her like cease your discharge. Just power. Power goes out from him. Just boom. She's healed. Now, down again in verse 32, this, this, is, what Jesus, this is how Jesus responds. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So the woman comes forward in fear and trembling, and I think that's for two reasons. On the one hand, she realizes what she's just done. She's made the entire crowd unclean. She's just touched Jesus, the rabbi, so she's A, a woman touching a rabbi, which is pretty off-limits, and then she's an unclean woman touching a rabbi, which is extra off-limits. And then, that's, she's expecting to get yelled at, because, or she's expecting to get stoned, because that's the sort of thing that would have happened to her. But she's also coming in fear and trembling because she realizes what has just happened in her body. She realizes that what she just did worked. So who she's standing next to and who now she has to answer to He's got some power behind him. And so she comes forward in fear and trembling. But notice Jesus, Jesus doesn't yell at her. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you touch me? Jesus doesn't, doesn't come down on her. He says, daughter. 
This is really interesting that he calls her daughter and not woman because it's a term of endearment. And in this whole story, Jesus isn't content with just letting healing go out from him. He's not okay with just going, ah, now she's better. I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to go to Jairus' house. He looks around for her because he doesn't just want it to end at healing. He wants to know her. He wants relationship with her. And then Jesus goes through all the trouble of looking for her, and he goes through all the trouble to let everyone know what has just happened. He tells her, he tells the disciples, he tells Jairus, he tells the whole crowd what has just happened. A, just to, just to show that she's fully restored. She's actually clean now. You don't have to stone her. She's clean. She can, she can be around people again. So her family, she can see her family again. It's amazing. Jesus fully restores her. And then he also does this, and Mark records it, because of what's about to happen to Jairus. Because imagine if you're Jairus in this story, where you've run to Jesus and said, Jesus, my daughter is dying. And he goes, okay, we're going to go with, we're going to go. And then Jesus takes the detour to stop and talk to this woman. Like, yeah, it's pretty cool, but Jesus, my daughter is dying. Now, if we look down in the text again, in verse, verse 35, just, yeah, imagine what, what Jairus must have been thinking. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the home of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? So the comparison is presented where the woman's faith um, has healed her. So I, it can get kind of confusing when we talk about like faith healing someone, but uh, this really great quote got passed along um, that I just want to share because I think it's, it teaches us a lot about what, what the gospel writers mean when they say, uh, or when Jesus said, what Jesus means when he says your faith has healed you. So this scholar says, was it Jesus's power that rescued the woman or her own faith? Clearly, it was Jesus' power. But he says, your faith has rescued you. The answer must be that faith, though itself powerless, is the channel through which Jesus' power can work. So Jesus praises the woman's faith. He says, your faith has healed you. And then these people come in with absolutely no faith. Say, why bother the teacher anymore? Now, the woman has reached out in, in ultimate faith, and these people come in with these voices, these unnamed people, why bother the teacher anymore? And so we're kind of presented, Jairus is presented with a situation, as we as readers are presented with this situation, what's going to happen? Notice what Jesus does. This is amazing. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came came to the home of the synagogue leader. Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, while this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus because he says, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Now, what Jesus does is he presents, so he praises the woman for her faith, and then Jairus learns that his daughter has just died. And he says, don't be afraid, just believe. And the word tense in Greek is uh, kind of a, a continuous action. So it can also be translated, keep on believing. So Jairus has once approached Jesus in faith. And, and honestly, Jesus has probably let Jairus down. The daughter dies before Jesus, get there, before Jesus gets there. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Have faith. The word is the same that he praises the woman for her faith. And the, the word for believe here in the NIV, it's, it's the same word. It's the Greek word pistis. So Jesus' response, he ignores what the people say, he ignores the other people's unbelief, and he just says, keep believing. So what's the business about, um, she's dead, uh, she's not dead, but she's asleep, she's only asleep. 
I think what Mark is doing here and what Jesus is doing here is he's talking about how we, as, as people who follow Jesus, should relate to death because Jesus has authority over death. Jesus is saying it's, it's, it's not final. It's, it's just like sleep. He's saying something to the effect of, in light of my power, death is like sleep, nothing but an afternoon nap. Death isn't the thing that wins out. I am. So we as readers, reading the whole Gospel of Mark, um, if we think back to Mark 4 and then 5, we see that Jesus has authority over all kinds of things. So in previous chapters, we see Jesus has uh, authority over the wind and the waves. And then we see Jesus has authority over the legion of demons, so over the dark kingdom. And then now we're in, in, introduced with Jesus and his interaction and his authority and his claim to authority over death. Let's see how it turns out. End of verse 40. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. Like, no duh. If you just saw a girl get up from the dead, you'd be pretty darn completely astonished too. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So they were completely astonished because Jesus raises this little girl from the dead. And it's interesting that we have this little phrase, Talitha kum. So it's in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus would have spoke. But it's interesting that Mark preserves that little phrase instead of just saying like, and Jesus resurrected the girl and then they went on their way. I think Mark does this for two reasons. On the one part, I think it's to talk about how Jesus isn't just another magician. He doesn't have this like crazy mumbling. He doesn't say abracadabra, get up. He just says, little girl, get up. And it's also a term of endearment. So similar to the way that he calls a woman daughter, he says talitha kum, which is like saying little girl, get up. It's what a parent might say to their little girl. I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about this, about resurrection. And, and in my mind, I go, yeah, it's, I mean, I be- totally believe the Bible, holy, infallible word of God. I absolutely believe that that happened then, but I'm pretty, pretty skeptical about it happening now. And maybe you might find yourself in that same place. But there's this amazing story about someone that a lot of you actually might know. If you've ever been to Haiti with uh, the Solid Rock team, this guy who runs the uh, Grace Village down in Haiti, who's, who's been there? Anyone ever been there? A lot of, well, a handful of people. So Bishop June, who runs the uh, Grace Village in Haiti, actually was dead, almost 48 hours. So the story goes, June's two years old, little baby June is two years old, and his dad goes away, travels around the country, gets sick, and dies. And because it's Haiti, it's like 150 degrees outside, and the body starts decomposing after one day. So the mom goes, well, the dad's at home. Uh, We have to do the funeral. We're going to send a messenger, and not like a text message, like really like a person you pay to go run and try and find the guy somewhere in Haiti. So the messenger ends up finding the dad and saying, hey, your son's died. They're going to do the funeral. Dad races home in his car. Whole way home, he's praying. God, I, I thought that you spoke to me. I thought you said that, that this guy, this, my son was going to do something. I thought you said you had plans for my son. How could he die? Praying the whole way home. Um, gets home in the mu- middle of the funeral procession. And he says, you have to stop. Let down, the, let down the, the casket. So they do it. And I'm imagining that there's probably some people going like, he's been dead for two days. They proceed to pray for an hour and a half over a dead two-year-old. An hour and a half, which just totally blows my mind on, on prayer. 
that they would pray for an hour and a half over, over a little boy who ceased breathing for two days. And they hear sneezing coming out of the casket. He gets up. Bishop June is still alive. Jesus had authority over death in this story 2,000 years ago, and Jesus has authority over death now. June's like 50 years old or 60 years old now. He's healthy, he's fine. It's a pretty cool story. And, and for me, my faith grows and grows every single time I hear that story. And I believe more and more, and my faith is changed every single time that I see Jesus' power happen. Notice back in this story in Mark, uh, Mark the, the story just stops. Mark doesn't say, hey, the moral of the story is, he just, he just stops. But I'm going to suggest a few thoughts as we um, kind of wind down on, on what we, what the moral of the story, what the takeaways from this passage are. Because I think what Mark is mainly communicating is that this is what it's like when the kingdom of God comes. We've been talking about it. Jesus proclaims it. This is what it's like when the kingdom of God comes. People from the top are healed. Men and women are healed. Unclean people are made clean. That's what it's like when the kingdom of God comes. But this story also says a lot about God. When, when we read about Jesus, we read about God. And for me, it's sometime, sometimes hard to think like that because I'm pretty used to the really familiar um, Western American way of thinking about God, which is he's kind of cold, distant, out there, some force in the universe. I really think of the Holy Spirit like the force from Star Wars. And it's just kind of like, maybe I can get this little bit of power. And when I have a lot of needs, I come to the cosmic vending machine and I ask for stuff. And that's the way I, I often think about God. So it's, it's, it's hard for me to change my perspective, but this is what Jesus is doing as I read more and more of his teachings, as I read more and more about his life. That, that as we read about Jesus, we read about God, and that means that God is nearby. God is interruptible. He cares about people and he cares about human needs. Also, he wants to know people. He's not just okay with dispensing healing. Remember the woman in the story. She could have just gone on her way and she would have been fine, right? But Jesus wants to know her. And just as Jesus wanted to know her, he wants to know each and every one of us. The woman just, what was not just a face in the crowd. And in a group of like 350, 375 people, it's really easy to feel like a face in the crowd. But know to Jesus that that's not you it's also really easy to feel unclean. But take heart from this story because anyone who touches Jesus goes from unclean to clean. Remember when I said in the beginning, anything that an unclean person touched became unclean? It's the exact opposite with Jesus. So if you feel unclean or you feel like a face in the crowd, the message for you is we don't come to God like consumers trying to get something out of him, but instead we come to Jesus like a father. And um, I'm I'm not a dad, but I'm imagining, um, for a lot of dads, this will resonate. If you're a dad, what do you want to do more with your children? You want to give them stuff, or would you like to be with them? Probably be with them. And, and God is the perfect father. This story also says a lot about timing. So remember from the story, uh, the woman's been waiting 12 years, trying everything, and nothing works for 12 years. Jesus lets the girl die before he heals her. And I think for us, that means that our takeaway is that a delay is not a denial. I'll say it again because I think it's really cool and it's, it kind of rhymes. <laughs> a delay is not necessarily a denial. So the question really is for you and for me, what have you been waiting for? What have you been waiting 12 years for? What have you been waiting 30 years for? What have you been waiting 10 months for? And the message on timing is really, don't be afraid, just believe. 
Don't stop. Keep on praying. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking on that door. And on that, because a lot of this has to do with healing, the story does say a lot about sickness and healing. And, and we have to approach this with a balance um, because it's really easy to go one way or the other. Now, ultimately, we have a hope. Um, we, as followers of Jesus, have a hope that one day we will all be healed. If you are a follower of Jesus, someday you will be healed, and that is a promise. It's a, it's a, it's a hope, and it's really just a matter of time. Now, it might be this side of resurrection, but it might be that side of resurrection. And on that, the tension is that any healing that we receive this side of resurrection is ultimately going to be temporary. Surveys show that everybody dies. So any healing that we receive now, which, which Jesus does want to give, and so we do run to him for it, is ultimately going to be temporary, but we know that there is going to be ultimate healing, an ultimate day when everything will be set right at the resurrection. So that's the beautiful tension that we live in. And that means that we still come to Jesus and we still ask for healing because that's what the kingdom of God is like when the kingdom comes. That doesn't, we don't, we don't get, oh, well, you know, I'm just gonna hold out hope. We come to Jesus for healing because that's what the kingdom of God is like. Jairus came expectant for his daughter, on behalf of his daughter. And the woman came expectant for, for a healing touch. Jesus is a healer, and he was a healer then, just as much as he is now. Now, the story also says a lot about faith and expectancy. So I think it's a beautiful image that the crowd gathered at the, at the, um, the edge of the lake is a lot like what we're doing. The crowd gathered, waiting for a chance to see and press in around Jesus. That's us. What we do here on a weekend or what you do in a Mitchell community is gathering around the person of Jesus, trying to get a glimpse, trying to get a touch. Remember, Jesus is not content with just the touch. He wants to know you. But that sort of faith and that sort of expectancy is what characterizes us. Notice throughout the Gospels that it's faith that triggers Jesus' healing. And, and remember that quote that I put up, it's not the power of faith itself, it's the medium by which Jesus uses, it's the medium that Jesus uses for his power to go out. Now, I wonder what might happen if we came in faith and expectancy that God was going to do something week in and week out, if every time we came to God, we expected something. So, so Mark tells us what the kingdom of God coming looks like. It's the unclean made clean. It's the suffering healed, the dead raised, the top and the bottom of society responding to Jesus' words. Now, like many of you, I've heard this before, and we can't stop at the kind of typical, now run to Jesus, call. I think what we need to take away from this chunk of Mark is that Jesus has authority over death in all of its forms. Say it again, because I think it's really cool. Jesus has authority and power over death in all of its forms. So when we read in the Bible about death, it's yes, real physical death. Jesus has authority over that. That's what we celebrate on Easter. We celebrate it at, when we take communion together. What we do is we celebrate um, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. It's real physical death, and it's real physical resurrection, and it's the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope for our eventual death and then our eventual resurrection. That's a real hope that we have. And because Jesus has power and authority over death, that means that absolutely anything is possible. That means that healing from sickness is possible. That means that healing from addiction is possible. That means the feeling of being dead inside 
even though you might have a heartbeat or you might have brain waves, that feeling of being dead inside, that's healable because Jesus has authority over death and absolutely anything is possible. So the call for us tonight is to do exactly what Jairus and the woman did with the knowledge that Jesus does have authority over death. So we've read the whole story. We know what Jesus can do. We've seen it happen. So we do what Jairus did and we do what the woman did. We expectantly push through the crowd to try and get at Jesus. So here, what does that look like? There's no guy walking around with a prayer robe that you can try and touch his tassels. Um, but we do have a really cool prayer room. Um, if you've never been over there, it's a completely normal thing. There's couches in there. We set it up every week. There'll be normal people in there to pray. Because we weren't made to be alone. That feeling of being unclean and separate from community, the, the, the inability to, to be part of other people's lives is a really hard thing. And so we were made to be in community. So I just encourage you tonight, if you, if you want to respond to this, so remember this whole thing about Mark, how his whole thing is about hearing and what you're going to do in response. And the response for us tonight is to share it with someone, is to ask for it. Maybe it's in the prayer room. And so I, I think that's the easiest way to do it. But if you came with someone, it could be sharing with them and asking for prayer. But the easiest way is through the prayer room. So I'm going to call um, the band folk back up here. And just to say it one more time, um, if you take nothing else away from tonight, um, other than I'm the person you can blame for the air conditioning, is that Jesus brings us hope. Um, hope for a lot of things. And since Jesus has authority over death in all of its forms, we have hope and we have faith in whatever circumstance we face. And where that means Jesus delays or he answers right away, we come expectant and full of faith asking Jesus. So if you would, if you would pray with me as we close and um, we're going to enter in a time, time of response.